May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. In the past, I've often talked about the three questions that I find helpful to ask. Whose are we? Who are we? And what is ours to do? When we think about our life as Christians and how we are involved in the mission of God, we are often tempted to jump straight into, well, what should we do? But I firmly believe that as people who seek to live in the way of Christ, we need to stop and first think about who God is for us. The who is God question, or the whose are we, is the foundational question, the, the most important question, and everything else comes out of that. And for me, at least, the starting point is the God we meet in the person of Jesus. In what the Gospels teach us about God revealed in the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and what the rest of the Bible teaches about the nature of God, and how we have experienced God in the crucified and risen one in our lives. Then in the light of that, we're invited to reflect on who are we then as followers of this God, as people who have put our loyalty and trust in this God. For me, that means to walk in the way of Christ in the footsteps of Francis and Claire. And then finally, out of all of that, uh, to ask the question, what is mine to do or what is ours to do in this time and place? This morning I want to suggest that these questions help us into all of today's readings. And I want to start with today's Gospel reading. Today's Gospel reading in Matthew's Gospel is one of the turning points. Jesus has, Jesus has taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now we could see that as some kind of random piece of geographical information, but there are a number of commentators who suggest that that actually... Uh, the situation of the story is important. So what do we know about Caesarea Philippi? Well, it stood at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And uh, at those headwaters is a cave, and around that cave is built, or was built, a temple to the Greek god Pan. So Caesarea Philippi uh, was symbolic of the whole Greco-Roman polytheistic religious cult. Uh, it was a centre of that cult. It was also on one of the major trade routes to Damascus, and so economically it was important. It was a powerhouse. It was originally built by Herod the Great in honour of Caesar Augustus, Roman emperor and lord of all in that land, even Herod the Great. And amongst his titles was son of God. At the time of Jesus, uh, Caesarea Philippi was the administrative centre for Philip the Tetrarch, so hence the name Caesarea Philippi. Philip was uh, one of Herod's the Great's sons uh, and was half-brother to Herod Antipas, the Herod in the Gospels that uh, Jesus is sent to um, uh, the century during his trial. By the time Matthew wrote his gospel, Caesarea Philippi had become 
the centre of Roman occupation. The Roman legions had returned there to celebrate the fall of Jerusalem as they enslaved and expelled many thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Jews out of Palestine. It was a place of pain and occupation. So in that place, then, how would you answer the question, who is God? Well, the residents would say, well, there aren't, isn't one God. There are many gods, including Caesar, <coughs> Caesar and Pan. And the gods reward the rich and the powerful with more wealth and more power. power. And uh, it's important to keep those gods happy and on your side so they may continue to reward you with more wealth and power. And in this place of power and wealth, even the Jewish leaders would have answered in a very similar vein. God then was the one you had to keep happy and rewarded you with wealth and power. So keeping that in mind, let's look at the story. Now, one of the ways to understand the story is Jesus is asking the disciples what people are saying about him when they, the disciples, are in conversation with him. And their answer is, well, people say that you are one of the great leaders of the past or one of the great prophets of the past. And some even see you as the forerunner to the one who would defeat the Herodians and the Romans and restore God's reign in this holy land. And some even say that you are the one who will do that. And we can see that in other parts in the Gospels. And then Jesus asks, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am in these conversations? And Peter replies, you're the Christ the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, we know that Peter really didn't know what he was talking about as he gave that answer. Shortly after this, Jesus will talk about how he will need to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, to be handed over to the Jewish leaders to die, and Peter forbids it. But even so, even though he doesn't fully grasp what he's talking about, out of his experience of Jesus, out of his experience of Jesus feeding the huge crowds, out of his experience of Jesus eating with all kinds of people no rabbi of self-respect would associate with, out of Jesus healing so many sick and freeing the possessed, out of Jesus calming the spirit-churned seas and walking on those same spirit-churned seas, displaying his authority and power over those spirits, out of that experience of Jesus, Peter knew that he had met a God of abundant compassion and generosity for all. That Peter had experienced God's abundant life and mercy for all. That Peter had experienced God's abundant justice for all. He knew that he had met the living God. So out of his experience of Jesus, he was being freed from the old ways of understanding God. Freed in the many ways of understanding God that were represented by the city and the district that this conversation was taking place in. And ultimately, that experience would change Peter. And he would join God's work of liberation with Jesus. And on that, on that changed Peter, on that Peter, who was changed by his experience of Jesus, 
Jesus would build his community. And to that community, which grows out of God's abundance, Jesus would give authority to interpret, to bind and to loose the understanding of Scripture, to bind and to loose an understanding of who God is. We can say, see the same kind of thing at work in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul talks about our minds being renewed, and there's been lots of discussion about what that might mean. But I think it means that uh, Paul was learning to see, like Peter, out of his experience of the crucified and risen Christ, learning to see through the abundant generosity and compassion and mercy and justice that we and he had experienced in Jesus, learning to see how we, learning to, to see God in new ways and learning to see God's world in new ways and learning to see himself in new ways. And he in, invites his readers in Rome to do the same, to see God in new ways built on the abundant generosity and compassion of God, learning to see God's world in new ways and learning to see themselves in new ways. That means learning, as Peter had to learn, to receive this abundance, to live out this abundance for ourselves. Because we learn from Jesus that God's desire is for all to share in the abundance of God. And it's not always easy to receive this kind of abundance, and it's certainly not always easy to live out this kind of abundance. So how do we live out or live in this kind of abundance? Well, I think the story from Exodus offers us some examples, particularly the woman in the story from Exodus. None of them had any grand plans. They weren't trying to do anything spectacular or revolutionary. They simply did what was theirs to do. The midwives, for example, helped mothers give birth to babies, male and female. And they helped the mothers care for their babies, male and female. And they were not going to give way to the evil commands of Pharaoh. They were going to work around those commands and do what they needed to do. And the Moses, uh, Moses's mother, well, for her, it meant finding a way for, for caring for her son and to find a way to help him stay alive, which meant putting him in a floating basket in the Nile. For Moses's sister, that meant standing, watching her brother from a distance to see what would happen to him. And then when he's found by Pharaoh's daughter offering to find a wet nurse for him. And for Pharaoh's daughter, well, while hers was a little bit more subversive, she chose not to follow her father's commands and put this Hebrew boy to death and instead to care for this one baby boy. Each one of those acts was quite small, but together they changed how the story went. And it's the same for us. We don't need to set out to change the world with God's abundance, grace and love. We don't need to set out to do anything spectacular. But we can set out to live each day in God's abundance, being open to receive that abundance, being open to the small ways we are invited to live that abundance for others. 
So if we were in Peter's shoes, what experiences of God's abundant mercy, compassion, generosity and grace in Jesus would you speak from if Jesus were to ask you that question? How does that experience shape who you see God to be? And how does that experience shape who you are today? And how does that experience shape how you live each day in abundance? As we continue to live in various levels of lockdown, certainly here in Tauranga, not particularly stringent, but still with restrictions, we're invited to live in God's abundance and to live that abundance, to receive that abundance and to live that abundance for others. How does our experience of the abundant God help us do that? You might like to spend a moment either in conversation with others or thinking about that for yourself before we carry on with the service.